Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with EstroControl from Happy Mammoth. EstroControl contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including EstroControl. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. You know, it's interesting. I think about this DEI work and like, you know, when it comes to change and transformation and talk about like anything that has to fundamentally change like so often you've heard me come on living corporate and talk about the fact that like these systems and structures need to change like it's really easy to scapegoat individuals or to talk about like kind of to participate in like trauma porn where you're just kind of like talking about your own individual experience and how bad it was and i'm not saying there isn't validity in talking about those things but when that becomes the center of diversity equity inclusion work one it centers whiteness two Uh, It centers trauma. And then three, it really gives the power holders and institutions and systems uh, free pass to continue to do what they do, which is oppress historically marginalized, historically excluded people. Um, And so, you know, I think really when you talk again about like transformation, like truth is critical and like uncomfortable truths you know, or it's important to engage, right? And anytime you talk about making a change, even in your personal life or in a business, you're going to have to face uncomfortable truths, right? So like, even as we title the show, Uncomfortable Truths, it's because as we really get down to this next level and next phase of whatever this is that we're calling um, this work, right? So people call it diversity and inclusion. Some people call it diversity and inclusion belonging. Some people call it uh, social justice, um, corporate social justice work. Um, some people call it, you know, racial healing, you know, but like this whole space, um, it's important that we really tackle like the, the realities of like where we're at. And so I'm really excited about the guests that I, we have today, uh, Katrina Jones. Katrina is like, first of all, 
um, I've been a fan for a while and we've been going back and forth trying to figure out when we're going to get on the podcast. And so I'm just really excited about the fact that like she's, she's here and we're going to actually have her back. So I'm just like really thankful for that. Katrina's own journey, the work that she's doing, um, her own consultancy, I mean, just some of the professional services and public speaking um, that she's been participating in and leading as well as her own executive experience. Um, and some, some of the world's largest brands um, really provide a certain level of nuance and vulnerability. Plus she's just willing to just, again, like vulnerability has nothing to do with your executive experience. That's just who she is as a person. So I'm just really thankful and excited that you'll be able to check in and really like hear this conversation. My hope is that you really take the time to listen because it's a phenomenal discussion. Now, before we get to the conversation today with Katrina, we're going to go ahead and tap in with Tristan. Then after that, you'll hear me and Katrina Jones. All right. Talk to you soon. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Today, let's talk about three mistakes you might be making when asking for a raise. Talking about money makes many of us uncomfortable. This discomfort leads to black and brown professionals being underpaid across the board. While I completely acknowledge that racism and sexism are the major factors in this discrepancy, it can also be exacerbated by the way we ask for more money, if we do it at all. So, let's discuss the most common mistakes I see employees make when asking for a raise. First is waiting until your performance review to discuss your raise. I know this seems like it might be the best time to talk about your salary, but unfortunately, that's not the case, and here's why. During the annual performance review cycle, your boss had to go through and give out raises based on those reviews. Those raises are typically run through their boss and approved by HR. So your boss is coming into the conversation with a set amount in mind that more than likely cannot be changed at that point. Timing is key, and I suggest you start the conversation early on, at least 90 days before your review cycle. Next is making the process personal. While many of us wish we could just get a raise because we feel we deserve one or need one, unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Employers see hiring and retaining you as a business transaction. They have a need and they are willing to pay for talent to fill the gap. That transaction has nothing to do with your rent, student loans, or any other personal matters. To get more pay at work, you have to do more or create better results. A raise means the company is investing more into you. So you need to make your boss feel confident in doing that by showing them what their return on their investment would be. Take the time to build better rapport with your boss. Identify how what you do contributes to the bottom line and gather proof to back you up so you're prepared when you meet to discuss your salary. Last and possibly the biggest mistake you can make is not asking at all. We've often been taught just to be grateful and that if we keep our heads down and get the work done, the money will come. I'm sorry to burst that bubble, but that's not how it works. If you don't negotiate your salary at the beginning of your career, you could be leaving upwards of a million dollars on the table over your lifetime. While I know it can be nerve-wracking, think of it this way. 66% of workers don't ask for a raise, but of those who do, almost 70% receive higher pay. When it comes to your career, you have to fight for the compensation that aligns with your skill set, expertise, and the contribution you're making or no one else will. 
This tip is brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Katrina, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. Uh, I am feeling really full today, full in a good way. How are you? No, I'm okay. I meant to say this off mic. Your edges look phenomenal. I'm going to tell you, in the, this era of COVID, yes, it's just, yes. you know what I'm saying? Black men specifically, you know, we yes. struggle. You know, I got this, now we're not a video podcast, but I got this hair, it's all gray, it look like a Tyler Perry wig. Oh. I mean, so it's inspiring <laughs> to see, yeah, to see your edges laid. It's good. Thank you. I, I did put a little edge control on the side and in the middle of the pandemic, this is one of the things that I have to do to keep my motivation up uh, for self-care. I have to, I put on earrings because I just need to feel like I'm going somewhere that's not in my house and right. maybe somebody's going to see me. Yeah. Whatever helps you get through. Now, what does your husband do? What now? Does he go to the barbershop? Because I see I got I went to the barbershop, got COVID. I'm not trying to scare nobody from okay, going to the barbershop. No one else. I, but I did. Get Absolutely. COVID. So there are lots of YouTube videos online. I don't know if your wife would be willing. And Ma, she cut she cut my the last time. So the last time you saw me at a panel, she was cutting my hair back then. Okay. Right. So she'll she'll get the one guard and just you know what I'm saying. Okay, hold on. I'm sorry. Let's go. Yeah. We're getting off of off of your husband okay. and going to me. I asked yeah. about your husband. What does he yes. do? So he is a legal project manager and he is bald. So his hair care has it. It I know, I know. In the shower, uh, it don't don't get me wrong. It takes him like twenty. No, it takes time. My dad, my dad, my dad shakes his head. Bald. I know it's work now. It is work. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said twenty five. It takes him really like it's a process. Now it's not this, <laughs> but it is a process. And no title. So now. Uh, let me ask you this, because, you know, yeah. people be bald, but everybody don't have the head to be bald. I know. Does your, does your, I know. Did your, did your, did your mother-in-law, did she shape your, your husband's head or is he just out here all natural? So I, that's a good question. And I'm going to ask him because he has a great round bald head. That's he doesn't have, that. though, uh, and, and I've thought about this for myself because, <laughs> I've had short hair before. I did a little, I won't do it again, but I've, I've thought about like how freeing would it be if you just buzzed it down? And I know that I have these things called Jones knots in my head because my daddy used to, these are the Jones knots. <laughs> so that is not. I've never heard of such a thing. That's a beautiful, that's beautiful. So wait, okay. Now let me ask you what, what your little one. Did yes. you shape her? Because I sh- I shaped Emery's head. I did not, and you can see it. Uh, see? Unfortunately, unfortunately, see? I'm gonna be real. I'm gonna be. And see, and now she's stuck with that for the rest of her life. Yes. See, with Emery, I would see. I got my hands are huge, and so yes. Emery's head's a little square, but see, it's even. Right? It's not. Per- oh, it's not. Okay, it's not but, perfectly round, yeah. but it's even. It's not lumpy. Yeah. It's not. You know what I'm saying? She could still go out there yeah. with like a, I could, I could hit her with a taper and she still would look like she got some sense out there. You know what I mean? Put the cut in the side. Cause you got to have like a little line, right? Like right on yeah. the edge. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So 
she's you know so she she's in good shape okay okay so anyway i don't know how we diverged off of this so let, let's get back to you yes i'm still sitting with your tyler perry wig by the way because <laughs> the levels of, of tragic stuff that is so <laughs> when i went to the barbershop when i was at the barbershop he literally yeah. said he said yo he's like zach how you got this young face and this old ass hair and i said hey yeah. yo relax first of all it's genetic everybody my family great early yeah. Um, but don't get it twisted. I'm still, I'm still him out here. And so he, so he took, so you talking about what's the difference between your wife cutting your hair. Okay. Now yeah. listen. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. He pulled out like 18 different clippers. I, he had my stuff looking what for dimensional out here. My line was crazy. I was like, what? I looked incredible. The angle. My head was doing all, I was like, I was like looking at all directions at the same time. I was like, yo. Amazing. I am him. Yeah, I, it was incredible. So, so that's all. But I, I appreciate my wife. I appreciate Candace Shaw because she probably gonna end up cutting my hair again. I think I have low key a little phobia of the barbershop now. I'm not gonna hold you. I'm, I'm a little because of, of that I, Rona. I know. I, I get it though because you go somewhere and you get the Rona. The, that place that becomes, regardless of what else it has been for you, that is the place where you got COVID. <laughs> I got COVID that's over the COVID there. Place. <laughs> yes, that is. No, we don't go to that barbershop. Yeah, I can't. And I love and I and shout out to Marvin. I love him. He know I got love. He's been my barber for like, like, hold on, shoot, eight years. Okay, that's a a relationship, and I know. Oh yeah, the relationship that you have with your beautician, with your barber, like that. Mm -hmm. I've not been to barbershops, but from what I've seen and read, heard, like it's it's true. It's true. It's it's important, and I I haven't cheated on not once. You haven't. Did you ever think about it? Yeah, because uh, uh, I don't know. I was I was in a dark place. You know <laughs> what I mean. I, uh, I felt like you know. I felt like I needed something. I needed something to make me feel good, just for me. Something different. You know, I need. I need. I needed some affirmation in my life. Yeah. And so I thought about stepping out, but you know, you know, you make vows for a reason, Katrina. You you, you go do. into these. You go into these relationships with your eyes wide open, and you you know, even in the the temptuous times, yeah. you still you still you know have to stick with it. So we we've stuck it out, and he's been he's been a great partner. Um, so back to this whole thing that we actually brought you an interview for, which yeah. is diversity, equity, inclusion. So we're coming all the way back around. I'm gonna bring us back around in a different way, right? Go ahead, go ahead. You got all the gray hair, right? I heard you say it's genetic. This is what word. You're, you're a DEI practitioner, so of course you have accelerated the gray hairs. Because that's a good point. It's a good point. This work is this work is wild. You and I actually met via LinkedIn back when you was uh, over there at Twitch. That feels like eight seasons ago. Yes, <laughs> it, it's. I know it was just a few, but it it feels like lifetimes have occurred in this mm-hmm. time in in the time over the years as a practitioner. Talk to me about your journey, like the work that you were doing yeah. at Twitch before, like the like you know what was the impetus for you to leave and yeah. take the and take the make the decisions that you've made. So, I've had a career about fifteen years now, fifteen plus in HR, and I and I came into HR after abandoning a legal career where I was going to be a lawyer. Went to law school first semester moved to New York and realized one, New York is the most amazing place, New York City to be exact. Um and I didn't after working at a law firm for for a few years, I realized this is not what I want to do. This 
this this is terrible. Um, and and over the next when I left that, I transitioned into HR, and my my entry point was creating an internship program, and and I was fascinated by the art and science of how do you identify talent? How do you make the match between an organization and external candidates? And then I was thinking really deeply, more philosophically, about how do you create and sustain an environment that supports all people from different walks of life, from different identities, backgrounds, and not just you know support in terms of they have basic stuff, but really creates a space where people thrive. And so that was the entry point for me. And I loved HR. I also loved, of course, and I did everything, right? Full cycle recruiting, talent management, elite like compliance, you name it, I've done everything. Um, and I, I was able to apply a lens of equity and inclusion to that work, right? So when I was, if I got called in because there was an issue with ex-employee who was a black woman, right? I could go in and I could share a perspective. I could shift things so that we were not stereotyping her through whatever the issue was, right? Moving forward to the best outcome in a way that really supports her as a whole person and as a black woman. Um, I know I'm, I'm going and I'm promise you I'm gonna get to the DEI part. I shifted into DEI because of the promise, potential, the mission. I'm a very mission-oriented, driven person. And, you know, what was compelling for me, of course, is what I think brings most people to the work, um, especially if you are someone from an underrepresented group, you know, feeling very strongly uh, about injustice and the injustice that you've experienced in the world that you wanted, you want to play a role in untangling and creating a more a fairer more just world organization right and so this is you know your career your step into that is that is your path to do that and to have an impact on people who are from and occupy multiple marginalized identities so that was that was compelling for me um my journey in the work has been interesting and i mean that in all the ways that that people say when they say interesting. Um, you know, I being at Twitch was was hard. Um, I, I, I was there because I loved, again, promise and potential, the community aspect of how the platform brings people together. Um, and I got to see that firsthand. Like I got to sit down with people who were part of for example, trans communities that were online really lifting each other up. And I could see how, you know, if you're, for example, in some place where there are no people who look like you or who have gone through the experience that you're having, you can connect to people on this platform, on social media, right? Um, and how powerful that is, how life-saving, literally, that can be. Mm. Um, and without getting too specific, right? Like I, I've been aligned and in organizations where our, our values weren't aligned um, and where the commitment to the work, and we know that this happens, can be superficial at best, right? 
and everybody comes in with big ideas about I want to do this, I want to change things. I think a lot of folks come in wanting to change systems, wanting to change systems within an organization. Um, and that's, it's really, really hard work. It is, right? Yeah. It's really hard work, even if you're an insider and think about this, you're, you're coming into a role as a DEI uh, practitioner or DEI leader, and you may have limited to no resources, et cetera. You are yourself have and are from uh, multiple marginalized identities, right? And so you you literally are outsider status in every way that you can think of trying to get an organization and system uh, and institution to adapt, to evolve, to to at least let up a little bit. So it's interesting, like to your point around even just like looking to create environments and then you start talking about like in terms of just in your early in your career, and then you start talking about and then you're talking about people really want to change systems, whether they realize that or not. I just I do wonder like how much we if we appreciate as like a space, like the an internal DEI function, if yeah. they realize that like connect that all behaviors yeah. are in some way connected back to a system that incentivizes or yeah. penalizes opposite behavior, right? Like yeah. that's the, yeah. that's like, that's like the, that's like the, I think still like one of the things that I don't know if we've yeah collectively grasped. No. So, I, and I'm going to say no, because, so that was the, you know, connection to what I, uh, the point that I was sharing about you're an outsider, you're an outsider in the system. And what do systems do with outsiders? Right. Hmm. Like you've got to conform completely or your life is your life and your experience are going to be hard as hell. Um, And systems, because the desire is always to preserve the system, are willing to chew an individual up and spit them out. Um, And I I think I don't think we are, are always connecting the dots in between exactly how those systems incentivize, reward certain behaviors, how they do and don't create accountability at an individual level and how that account lack of accountability, uh, how the behaviors that are rewarded cumulatively add up to what you see, what, what people experience to in that culture, within a team, across the organization. And it's gonna show up, of course, in the lack of people, you know, from underrepresented groups in the C-suite, in leadership, um, for, in your promotions, right? In your hiring, all, like all of that. It's going to show up in all these ways. It's going to show up in employee relations, right? Um, but that's that's, an, that's a great, you know, point because those are the dots we need to start connecting here. So as you look at the landscape of like of, of DEI, you know, we follow each other on social media. I'm curious to get your perspective on just like where it is as a space. And if you have any, like based on just even like kind of like if we were to cross reference the DEI work that's happening now and like the political landscape that we're looking at, as we look at midterms, like what do you see? Like, what do you see on the horizon? I'm going to tell, so I'm going to tell you this. I'm what I'm seeing and hearing just anecdotally from people is a lot of people who have been in the space who are 
feeling ready to exit, who are just done. Um, Cause it's, it's all been too much uh, in this. And, and often they're navigating again, as a person from a, a group, uh, multiple marginalized identities. Um, but what I'm seeing and you know, connecting to what's happening is we are experiencing a backlash that you know, post that, that global racial reckoning wasn't the racial reckoning that we thought it was. It was more of an extended book club meeting. Because um, <laughs> 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 everybody was reading all the books and, and, you know. All the books. All the books. All the books. What was the bestseller list looking like for 10 weeks? I don't know. Rob, Robin D'Angelo got some more money, though. I know that much. Right. Yes, white for She got paid. She yeah. got paid. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it's it's interesting. You know, I've said this before. I don't know if I said it on Living Corporate. I think I have. Yeah, probably. White people really don't have a conscience. Like, not really. Like, like the like the group. Like white people as a group. I'm just like my. I have a sister. Some sister in laws. They have a yeah. conscience. My white auntie. She has a conscience. Yeah. But like when you think about like just kind of like collective. The thing, the collective consciousness, and I mean, like, frankly, like Mar- like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both talked about this shoot fifty plus years ago. Yeah. But it's just wild, though. Like when you look at like kind of the landscape, it's just like it's like how are we having these same conversations? We we debate nigger again. We yeah. got right, right. <laughs> what? So, so the other thing that's happened, aside from the racial justice reckoning, was really an extended book club meeting. Is there's a backlash because there is a perception that there were, was progress, there were changes made, uh, that some of the racism was solved. And anytime you have progress, anytime you have even the slightest hint of progress, but also the slightest appearance that the, the people in power are losing their grip on that power, that that is loosening, right? You, yes. they double, folks double down, it, it, the, yes. it comes back and the backlash is ferocious, and that's what we're experiencing now. And and you see it across and with all issues, communities. And I'll give you an example: um, marriage equality. Marriage equality after marriage equality passed, you saw a persistent um, uh, number of bathroom bills happening across the country. You can see that in what's happening now, like literally more banning trans kids in sports. That this is the, this is the backlash. Mm-hmm. There's an appearance that the grip on power has loosened, even though we are not feeling anything that anything has changed. We are not seeing that anything has radically changed. And not at all. We're seeing, you know, uh, some representation, but representation uh, doesn't equate to change, right? No, a lot, and I, was, I mean, we do equate representation with liberation a lot, right? We do. Be like, we do. Hey, y'all, we're gonna put a little, we're gonna put a black person in this space yeah. that hasn't had a black person in the past two hundred years. Dance, yeah. it's like I don't, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. You know what I'm saying? Like that don't matter. It doesn't. It doesn't at all. Like it's yeah. great for like great for them, like and and like their circle of people. Yes. But like, but like that, that's not creating collective uplift at all. Like, I guess I'm curious, like, talk to me a a little bit about you have shared um, your own experiences with grief 
yeah. and loss. Like, I'm curious, like, one, what role has grief and loss and you managing that grief played in your professional career as a DEI practitioner? And then also, like, did it at all factor into you exiting your last place and hanging your own shingle? Yeah. Um, Beth, you were going to make me have to go sit in a corner and put myself in the fetal position <laughs> afterwards. I've been transparent about my journey and also struggles with grief. My mom passed away in March of 2019. My mom and I were close in a way that I described as being tethered and on this side and the other. And I still gratefully feel her connection. And it's a loss that I was, you know, I was not, nothing could have prepared me for it you know, for my mom passed away at 75, right? Like I just, I, in my head and heart, I knew she was going to be with me longer than she, than that. So it has a profound effect. And, and this is someone I was super close to, talked to all the time, was my, one of my best friends. Um, and we could, and I've, I've shared this before, we had this, this connection uh, spiritual connection where I could look at her and know exactly what she was thinking, mm. read it in her face. And I'll, ne- you know, mm. I'll never forget that. And being in the hospital, she'd had a stroke and it affected her speech and also community um, interpretation, but her um, ability to speak. And I could look at her face and she was talking to me, even though her mm. speech was impaired. And so you you go through that kind of loss that it, it forever changes you. And one of the things that I have come to realize within the last year was, and actually even less than that, within the last like four or five months is that I was not, I was deeply affected in a way that I did not express at the time. I didn't express, I didn't recognize or acknowledge at that time, but I was living and working through the grief and it was really unhealthy, right? Um, and, and to be honest, I probably, I was not showing up as my best self at all the time because I was in the, in this, right? I didn't even take proper time off afterwards mm. um, after her funeral. Um, I think I went back to work um, her funeral was on Saturday and I flew, I was, uh, my family's in Texas and I flew back to California on Monday or Tuesday, Mon- Monday. And I was back at work on Wednesday because I didn't know what else to do. And, you know, people express their condolences, but they don't make space for you to exist as an, as an employee and as somebody who's doing really difficult, contentious, emotionally charged work, um, it, you know, as a grieving person, as a person who is living and working through the grief. Um, so that's, that is a, it's a lesson for me, right, of, and I, I've definitely taken the lessons and learned from it, but it's, it's was really, really hard and definitely contributed to, you know, my steps afterwards and just, uh, 
going through that and navigating the grief and feeling it all the time and, and the heaviness mm -hmm. of it and also navigating this emotionally difficult work and also experiencing you know harm and lack of support in the environment i one i, I appreciate you sharing you know i think about so not my mother uh, but i recall um, I've been, but I've been working, shoot, I've been working now almost over 10 years now. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I recall, um, I lost my grandmother yeah. then. And I just remember, I remember still taking calls and being yeah. harmed by people yeah. just treating me like that loss didn't even happen. Yeah. Um, same thing with my stepfather who passed away a yeah. couple of years ago. It's just like, you know, people, they just... It's, I don't know. It just, I think like in those, for the, for me in those seasons, it always like grounded me more. Yeah. Because I just realized that these people don't really care nothing about you. Yeah. And that's a really painful revelation to have. After in the midst of that. midst of that. And, and you're grieving and you experience this catastrophic loss, right? right. And realizing the people that you spend, because how many hours? Were you at a day? Were you at work? Right. 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 Ten, I'm, I'm here 10 hours a day. I'm through the night. Um, right. You all do not care about me as an individual. And it's, I mean, it, it is part, one of the issues in our workplaces. And we talk about creating cultures of inclusion and bringing your whole self to work and your authentic self and everything. But are you really making space? for what people are going through, for, for what grief looks like, for what it looks like to go through the grieving process where you don't, you don't know which way is up, you know, everything is, you might need some days, you might just need to tuck it in, right? Or, or you need some extended break or whatever you need. But one of the things um, that I was really aware of was people weren't asking me, like, you know, they did the initial customary, like, how are you? But the people, you know, a couple of weeks go by and no, nobody's checking on, checking in. Nobody's, you know, asking you how you're real. Like, yeah. At all. In our environments, when people are there, the expectation is you're here. So you're just, you're going to work, right? And there's limited bereavement leave, limited as much as there's unlimited PTO. If you really needed to check out for two months to to navigate that, would your environment, would your, would the organization support that? Right. You know, it's interesting too because you just think about like the more I get into, I think you know I'm at Momentum now, we're a data insights company, so like I'm taking full advantage of that and like really looking at just data, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so. And so like something I've I'm realizing is that pretty much any time and this is not gonna be a surprise to you. Yeah. And it wasn't a surprise to me, but it was like really like reinforcement of like anytime like white employees are going through something at work, like the yeah. data, whatever the case is, black folks are going through it way worse. Like yes, yeah. like it, yeah. it, it's like that all the time. Like black yeah. and brown people, it white okay, white folks having this challenge with bereavement yeah. or whatever the case yeah. is, black black and brown people exponentially it's like way worse like all the time or it's like still no it's as bad or notably worse and so yeah. it's interesting because like I, I question like when you think about like just like the higher morbidity rates of black people and the fact that like yeah. we're gonna likely end we're likely gonna end 
experience, sadly, just because of the way the world is set up. Well, look, because racism and studies show racism has a detrimental effect on life expectancy as well as, you know, the care that you receive. Right. My grandmother and great grandmother had longer lives than my mother did. And my expectation in part was based on that, but also that, you know, my parents lived in Texas. They went to Whole Foods and bought organic Mm -hmm. stuff and uh, Mm -hmm. had access to better medical care than I'm sure my great grandma had. Yeah. I just, I knew, shoot, she's, she might live to be a hundred. I don't know. Technology. Mm -hmm. There'll be air chambers. It'll be, you know. <laughs> right. No, real talk, though. Yeah. 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 And that's not what happened. And so, I, you know, it did make me think. So in that grieving, I did. Um, and eventually, and this is, that's the thing about it. It's been a longer process. It's not something like I got to in six months, a year, two years, you know. It hasn't been, it hasn't been a linear journey. No, but it's been a longer process to get to a place where I, yes, I'm out on my own as a DEI, you know, full-time DEI and talent consultant, launching my own business and choosing freedom and prioritizing joy, knowing and seeing how our, our health, our longevity is impacted because of all of the things that we were talking about. So... You talked a little bit about it already. Like this wasn't really like a movement. It's really more like an extended book club. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I, I asked. I asked you. I'm curious. Like, so as I look at the landscape, I don't think the DEI is very long for this world. Like, I don't think this internal function. I don't think it's very long for the world. I yeah. think that. I think that the days of like yo, let's like have a heart circle or yeah. like talk about our feelings. I think those days are like coming to an end, and I feel like it's going to be more so hard on like. It's going to be focused more on like data and research. Oh, absolutely. I'm curious, like, like, what do you think? Like, do you agree with that? Would you say that, do you feel like, do you feel like in like five or six years that like, we're all going to come together and talk about how racist we are or how real our privilege is? Well, we might've eliminated teaching history, so we won't be able to talk about, um, I think those conversations are important because it is part of one, the heart work at that people need to do. And frankly, it's part of the head work that you need to do to elevate and widen your consciousness to understand how you are walking through the world and how people receive you and perceive you, the doors that open because of that for you. Um, And that's a, a starting point to then examine and compare against other people then because what I find is people don't do that work. They haven't thought about it ever. They don't even name, for example, um, one of the workshops I lead is on identity and, and privilege and exploring specifically what people's I- identities are. Um, sorry, my little one is coming in. Now, you know, you are supposed to. Anyway, um, <laughs> she, she loves being on camera. Um, so stop please so people are not so they're not in that workshop i i have them name the their race their gender gender identity um parental status so it's it's a great exercise and then they break into small groups and they talk through it and it's often the first time they're naming for many white men especially white people often 
but it's the first time people are naming that, which tells me that they have not examined done the work. Well, they haven't done the work, but they also exist in spaces where they don't need to name that because mm. it's default for them everywhere that they go. Um, and the data, you know, this is incredibly important. It'll become more important, I believe, because of because of that reason. It's it is the validation that we will need to continue to to wave around to say, hey, this is a real problem, especially when representation. Um, there's a black person in a senior role or several black faces, right? And so the perception becomes, well, I'm looking around and I see at least, you know, X number of people in these senior roles. So we must not have the problems anymore, right? Like we don't need to do anything, right? And that's when you say, I have something to show you. Right. But I, I think that's the data is going to become really important because people will, the dismissive, that dismissive thread that's happened, right? That we are now talking about saying the N word and well, that's not actually really racist. So what we're seeing too is <laughs> that needle is, mm-hmm. that boundary is shifting. Well, it's not unless, you know, there's a news mm-hmm. on a desk and there's uh, video footage from it has to be like like ridiculously over the top. It has to be so racist that white folks say, "Oh God, that's like, hey." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let me put down my yeah. Right, you know, I don't pay attention. Right, this is come on now. We don't like we don't do that here. But most of the time, <laughs> especially you know in corporate organizational spaces, corporate nonprofits, it, it's not obvious it's not you know it's not it's much more it's much more subtle and nuanced than that it, you know to, to, to that and like that creates impact for us you know to that and i know uh we have a mutual yeah uh, in minda hearts yeah um, you know talking about her book right within and just really yeah. navigating racialized trauma yeah um, especially as a black di practitioner i'm curious like Amazing. what what are some learnings that you have you've you've uncovered as you've like navigated this space aiming to be like a voice and a light for other black and brown folks yeah. while also being harmed in the system that you're working at to create change for those black and brown folks. Like the, like, like that, that, that compounded yeah. labor is hard. It's certainly been challenging for me. Oh, I'm, curious, no, no, no. I'm curious to know like what it was like, what it's been like for you. Oh my gosh. Uh, can I tell you that when I talk to other black and brown folks in this work it's one of the things that they when we have these conversations that they're talking about as well that you are in this organization that you know is harmful to black and brown folks right um there and marginalizes people within the organization you see that in promotions you see it in in everywhere in hiring all that stuff in leadership right and so you know and you're there to 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 do something about it. And yes, to fix it. To fix it. <laughs> right? You've got your like, ha, let me. I got my sword. I got some, you know, I got a machete. I'm like, I got all the things. Um, <laughs> but what I don't have is a budget or a team or anything like or that. Or any or any organizational authority to tell anybody right, what to do. Right. Or any institutional authority, right? Right. Um, right. I, what I have is influence. And what I'm trying to do is influence people to listen to me when they are not socialized or conditioned to listen to people who look like me. That in fact, when they hear from someone who looks like me, 
they start asking more questions. They don't accept what I'm saying as fact or truth. They think that what I am uh, putting out into this world, well, it's, you know, I, I'm doing it for my benefit. And so it's not as valid. Um, so all the while I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fighting that I'm experiencing, I'm being undermined by people that I'm supposed to be collaborating with. I uh, don't have the support of leadership, et cetera. I don't have institutional resources. I don't have institutional authority or power, nor is it within my scope in any way. And if we're being completely honest, I'm also at times experiencing harm from other people in my community, right? So other, you know, black employees who will sometimes say I'm supportive or I want to be supportive, but don't always show up in ways. Can we talk about it? Because these black folks, let me tell you something, and I love us. I we know. we got we got to talk about it. This is why <laughs> we got to talk about. It. We have to talk about internalized oppression and how it shows up. Oh my gosh! Like my thing about my thing. What I've noticed with corp, with like a lot of black folks in corporate America is they're often so happy just to be co opted, yeah, or or sell out for like the promise of something like yeah. not even like, Oh, yo, yo, if I, if I get co-opted in this way, I'm going to get promoted right yeah. now. Yeah. I'm going to get some money right now. Well, nah, yeah. if I do this, if I play ball, if I, whatever, if I yeah. capitulate, then in like six months, I'm going to be on a short list to get promoted. Yeah. It's like, and, it's, and, it's so tough. And it's tenuous at best. Like you're, even with that, even with being co-opted and there was a, uh, a Harvard business review article that came out just today, I believe, that talked about the gaps in sponsorship for Black employees um, versus non-Black employees. And in the article, it specifically pulls out that Black senior leaders are less likely and hesitant to, you know, actually sponsor other Black employees because of the perception that it's self-serving. And also because they worry about the impact to their career, right? And so that position, though you, though you might have pole position, it's t- it's still tenuous at best. When I first joined, like when I first got into corporate America, Katrina, I remember there was this black guy who was like, he was trying to justify him not sponsoring other black people. Yes. Right? Like I, re- I remember because he was like, look, my advice to you is, look, I'll give you a sing behind the scenes, but make sure you get a white person who really going to advocate for you. I don't want to be because if if I do it, it's going to look kind of weird because I'm, I'm the person sponsoring all the black people. And I remember at the time, because I mean, I was like, I don't know, 22. I was like, I mean, OK, well, all right, whatever. But like, oh, I get I was like, yo, that's that's some Uncle Tom stuff. Like you sound like you sound like a step and fetch right now. Like, like, yo, you are in these spaces for a reason. And what I realized what I realize is, is that a lot of black folks don't want to be free. They just want to be white. And like, that's a different, like, that's a, oh, like, that's yeah. going to feel like a shot across the bow, but it's true. Yeah. Like, I, I never, I never forget, like, cause I know we were talking about like off mic, right. We were talking about the summer yeah. of George Floyd and like post George Floyd and blah, blah, blah. I remember when George Floyd was initially murdered, like how in vogue it was to care about black stuff. Like it was so Yes. It was so, it was like the new hotness to yes. care about black stuff. It reminded me of when I was in, I think like elementary school, middle school and FUBU Platinum came out and everybody, yes. it was like, it, it reminded yes. me of like very fashionable to care about black. 
And I yeah. remember there was this particular black person who I was working with at the time who literally, like literally we did some deep, we did some work the year before. And she was mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to say nothing too crazy. Cause you know, whatever. And then I, and, and we, and so then she, but then she came back and now she's the leader. She's the leader of the niggas now, Katrina. She, she doing, she, she, the person in charge, right? She got yeah. the black pan Africanist flag on a profile picture. I'm like, what is going, like, what is going on? Yeah. And then we had a conversation. I confronted her about it. And she was like, well, because if I had not, if I had done all that last year, then I'm trying to get promoted. It wouldn't have, it would have, it would, it would have hurt my promotion chance. Like, right. And now this is Advent. Now your blackness is advantageous to you. So now you're going to over index. Yes. So for, so that you can, so that your individual position can improve. Yeah. You don't actually care about the, like other black folks beside and around you. You don't care about that. Yeah. And like, that, and like, and I feel like, I feel like more than other groups, like we're really guilty of that. And maybe I'm like, I could, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. I, so I want to bring some loving accountability as Brittany would say, Brittany J. Harris. Yes, uh, Brittany. Of Liberated Love Notes. Uh, and also the the person that I partnered with recently on a, a webinar series, a two-part webinar on navigating internalized oppression and workplace conflict amongst the black community. And it, you know, very powerful. Um, and one of the things that I'm hyper aware of is we are operating within the system, right? So we internalize white supremacy, white supremacist culture. Um, we internalize all of the isms and all of the oppressive structures and the rules right uh, of those structures and so many of us have been told that the way to success is you got to get a good corporate job you got to work your way up right and get to be get to be your vp or svp you know um sit close or be within at least arm's reach have a good job with benefits and have a you know company card and that that is the path to success and that part of you know part of this path requires us to to pay tolls um it's going to require us to persist and put up with a you know regular racism to navigate the politics along with the racism at the same time to be dismi- diminished and dismissed and so i that framing and just knowing that is important uh you know, for me, I, it's painful. It's painful to have these experiences with other Black people, to be in spaces where you are not supporting each other in a spirit of abundance, that there is this spirit of competitiveness. And I also understand we're in the system, and I know what the system does. It is designed to pit us against each other, uh, to create an environment where there's only one or there can only be one, and where Black people... And again, research shows are punished for advocating for other Black people because it's seen as self-serving. Um, there is little reward. And also, you just don't have the institutional power, right? When the person told you to go find a white sponsor, frankly, they weren't wrong. 
Oh no, and I and I, I mean, I, and I mean, look, my thing is, it's like I think, and and you're right, like we are operating in the system, and there's only and there. I'm never going to like outright shame somebody for yeah. trying to like do what they can to survive. I think there are lines though between like survival and you just okay now you like because yeah. because ultimately it's not you're not gonna get fired yeah for sponsoring me you're just going to lose a little bit of juice in front of some white folks right like your your white acceptance goes down a little bit so I may not get fired uh, and I may they may start passing me over for that promotion or I may not get that bonus my bonus is going to be so it it may end up taking money off the tip and I'm not disagreeing with you at all and I feel the same way uh in that I as painful as it is I I do my best um not to hold it against and I generally just don't because I I I know what's happening it doesn't make it hurt any less but I know I know what's happening I know what this is and I'm not going to fight people who are experiencing the same oppression, harm, et cetera. Now, that's not to say that I'm going to support you regardless, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't need to do, I don't need to wait to spend my time and energy that way. And right. I, this is why I, you know, I went and, and started my business because I can, I need to exist in a space of focusing on abundance focusing on joy and, and that freedom. And I, I have greater freedom. I have, and, and I've been, you know, intentional about connecting with people who live in that spirit of abundance. And, and that's what we're operating in is this spirit and space of lack and scarcity. Uh, and that's how we show up in response. And, and again, our programming is get that good job, make sure you have benefits. Anytime I was considering a new opportunity. My mom would always ask me, what are the benefits? Well, you know, I literally um, yes, yes. send her the, the, here mom, here's all of the benefit information. <laughs> Let me out, lay this out for you. For you. Because that was the goal. Right. But what, what if the goal is different? What if it's something else? What if it's, and it doesn't have to be an either or, but what if it's, yeah, I want to be able to, to be successful financially. I want to be able to take care of myself. I want to be, but I also want to be, and I want to be in joy and in community with Black people and support them and have the freedom to do so in a way that uplifts people that's not in the spirit of competition, scarcity, uh, or not in the spirit of I'm doing this because it's it serves me. Uh, from a professional image standpoint, right? Or because it's popular and it's okay for me to do so. I'm doing this because I have a commitment that's deeper than any of this. Then deeper, it's deeper than the, that 401k and the benefits. My commitment is to my people. Mm. Mm. Think about it. <laughs> Just. Mm. Marinate on it a little bit, but I, re I receive it. And shout out to Dr. Nika White and John Graham, who's an author and who's written a book called Plantation Theory, The Black Professional Struggle Between Freedom and Security. Mm. Put that, I'm going to put that link in the show notes. Yes. 
they had uh, a, an event today, a webinar today, where they were talking about just this, right? They were talking about what are we showing up in service of? Who are we showing up in service of? Like I hear, and I do hear you. And like, so it's not about like dogging people necessarily being angry. I think, I think that, I think my, I think where I get upset is when I see folks look like it doesn't, it doesn't cost you anything or cause some part, some part of also like a get, part, participating in the system is realizing yeah. that you can also build trust equity with white people by yeah. shitting on other black people. Yes. Yeah. And look, that, that absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and so then it's like, and so it's 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 those sorts of behaviors of like being silenced, like simply yeah. not speaking up when you see something that's wrong. Like those are types of things that I feel like it's just tough. Like it's it's tough, and it's like so often. Like I I've noticed that like organizations they give when they give a black person, oftentimes, especially yeah yeah, almost, yeah, oftentimes they give black people authority. They give them authority over other black people. So like I would love to hear more about the book, like, and engage in that. It reminds me actually of Dr. Caitlin Rosenthal's, based on what you're speaking to, um, is the account, a book called Accounting for Slavery. And so Accounting for Slavery was studying like, but it was more so about how basically modern day management consulting came from chattel slavery. And so, but, but part of it was talking about this whole like middle manager setup, right? And so anyway, a lot of parallels there. Uh, Over the summer, uh, I visited Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. It's like an hour or so outside of New Orleans. Um, and it was my first time stepping onto preserved plantation grounds. And I, 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 I am a historian, you know, sociologist and, and curious learner. And I, and I wanted to, to see it, to be, be there. Um, and it was eerie and, you know, spiritual. One of the things that I remember from walking around, right. And, and I, I, I'm hesitating because I don't want to say tour because Mm. I I messed up it, right. Like Mm. to tour the site of atrocities, right. Mm. Uh, It's, it's, this is where my people were tortured, right. And Mm -hmm. labored. Um, at literally like animals, disposable. And one of, I'll, I'll never forget, and walking and, and walking through every everything and reading um, one of the plaques that talked about overseers. Um, and it said that overseers um, were frequently black. Uh, and I, I, it may have been specific to this plantation, but it, it, it's, I don't believe it is. And they were, you know, they had that power, but as overseers, they were black, right? And so, and they had that power as overseers. Their job was to, you know, use their power to get more labor out of other enslaved black people. And they, as the plaque read, they were sometimes murdered by the enslaved uh, Africans and say enslaved black people. And the overseers were also disposable. So there wasn't, you know, there the level of punishment as an enslaved uh, person that you would experience for murdering a black overseer is not what you would experiencing for murdering or harming a white person or even threatening 
a white person. But black people, even, yes, with that institutional power, yes, who play a critical role in getting more labor out of enslaved Africans, enslaved black people, are also disposable. And that has mm. stayed in my heart and soul, right? Mm. For us to remember, yes, we are in these spaces. Yes, we have these great jobs that, you know, allow us to pay bills, to take care of our families and our extended families. And that's what we do. And that matters and benefits and stock and 401k. And, right? Mm. Who are we in service of? And don't forget that we are still operating in systems where we are disposable. Mm. I love it. And let me, let me clarify that. We are not disposable, but we are treated. Treated as if we are. Absolutely. No, I hear you. And I agree. Um, Katrina, it's been a phenomenal conversation. You know, we used up all our time. I want to make I sure. Know. You I know. I know. I just, and we didn't even get to talk about, like, I wanted to talk about accountability. I would love to do a second part and really. Let's do a part two. No, yeah. no, let's do it. Let's, let's do a part two. Yeah. Um, and like, you can come back as soon as, as soon as possible. Okay. And we'll, and we'll put it up. Um. Thank you so much. And look, shout out to your shop, yes. Advancing Equity okay. and Inclusion, a boutique talent, diversity, yes. equity, and inclusion advisory firm. Yeah. Um, we'll make sure to put, you know, your link in the show notes. Yes. Thank you. DEI and Talent Advisory, working with organizations to connect their programmatic efforts and work and initiatives into defined DEI strategies that are comprehensive, that actually move the needle. Come on now, moving the needle. Katrina, we're going to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Zach. Peace. Bye. And we're back. Yo, thank you so much to Katrina. Thank you for being a guest. Really thankful to have you. Excited for you to come back. Um, And look, I, I want folks to understand, like, if... Um, you're doing this work. If you're in this space, you're going to be subject to different levels of trauma. Like that's just like the reality of um, this combination of white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, frankly, late stage capitalism, because all capitalistic systems aren't this harmful. But the point is that, you know, this particular kind of you're going to experience um, severe trauma. And so the, the question there is like, how do you navigate those harms? How do you uh, navigate loss? How do you navigate disappointment? How do you navigate perhaps being snaked by folks who look like you? Right. Um, and how do you how can you decenter yourself even in the midst of that harm? So that it doesn't destroy you, right? So it doesn't crush you. Um, and I'm just really um, thankful for Katrina because of her journey and her willingness to share. And then also just her resilience, you know. But I mean, shout out to black women off top. In fact, Simon, give me some air horns right here for the black women. Come on now. Um, I mean, just ridiculously re- uh, resilient um, in a world that does not deserve y'all. But I appreciate you. And we have to do a better job um, of just like creating a space and an environment where where women, particularly black women, particularly even black trans women who want to be like extra, extra specific are supported, respected and um, and uplifted. Listen, this has been Zach. You've been listening to Living Corporate. We hear every single 
week. Make sure you check us out. We'll be here at the same time in the same place next week. This is if you've been listening on Tuesday. You know, podcasts are a different type of medium. Perhaps you listen to this on a Wednesday. Maybe you listen to this on a Saturday night. Maybe you've like, maybe you're checking this out three years from now. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking to you from the past. You listen to me in the future. You know, it's weird. Like, media is like this, um, what's the word like this uh, you know immutable uh, immortal thing right especially when you combine it with the internet so anyway the point is wherever you're listening to this from maybe you're listening to this like 30,000 years from now maybe you like found this in some type of dusty archive you like you know y'all have like discovered podcasts I don't even know if like humans would be alive you think humans be alive in 30,000 years I don't know man I don't see it I don't see it anyway look my ramblings (laughs) we'll catch y'all soon Make sure you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And uh, yeah, peace. <laughs> Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.